Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Hello, listeners, and welcome to season three of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. We're so excited to get back into it with you all. We have some great episodes planned for the season, and as always, a range of neurodivergent guests. If you have any questions or feedback about our episodes, you can contact us through our social media accounts on Facebook or Instagram, our website, theendywomanpod.com, or email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. You can also join our Patreon community to support us further and receive additional exclusive content. But for now, here's our first episode. Today on the podcast, Michelle and I wanted to talk about autism and ADHD and the overlap between both and what happens if you have both. Yeah, this is a question that we get a lot and we're obviously seeing more and more presentations of autism and ADHD together for reasons that we will unpack today. Um, So we're going to go through some of that kind of overlap, what it looks like together. And we also want to chat today about what actually are the underlying constructs that the diagnostic criteria for both autism and ADHD are measuring and how do we kind of tease apart you know, what's coming from where, whether it's autism, whether it's ADHD, or whether it's something else. Recent research has started to show a co-occurrence of autism and ADHD. So up to 60 to 70% of autistic people also meet criteria for ADHD. And when you look at the research for people who are ADHDers, uh, the reverse is also true. So up to 60 to 70% of people who meet criteria for ADHD also meet criteria for autism. And prior to 2013, uh, with the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual number four, so that's sort of like the psychiatrist Bible um, that we use to diagnose mental health conditions and neurodevelopmental conditions, uh, you weren't actually able to diagnose someone both with autism and ADHD. So these diagnoses weren't really allowed to co-occur. And looking back on it now, I'm not quite sure why. I guess in the context of current research and what we're seeing in clinical practice, I just think it's interesting that, yeah, there wasn't that acknowledgement that you can actually have more than one, you know, neurodevelopmental difference at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's coming from, you know, the hangover of how we originally conceptualised things like autism and ADHD as not being neurodevelopmental differences but being disorders or things that could be wrong with someone. Um, and I feel like the thinking would have been, well, you can't have more than one of these things wrong with you, right? Um, there's only one of these things that can 
can, you know, quote unquote, go wrong with someone. Um, but then obviously, you know, as we're understanding more about what these things are, of course, it makes absolute sense that you can have an autistic brain and an ADHD brain. And in fact, you know, we know, and Monique and I have shared a lot of the research and data around this of actually how common it is statistically to have multiple neurodivergences. Yeah, so after 2013, when the DSM-5 came out, you were then able to assess and diagnose people with both autism and ADHD. And with this current research, I mean, with the 60 to 70% overlap occurring, it's actually more common if you, uh, you know, if you're a clinician or a medical profession, it's going to be more common for the person sitting in front of you to have both than actually to have one or the other. And due to previously not, uh, I guess, allowing people to be diagnosed with both, a lot of the research before 2013 would mostly focus on either autism or ADHD and not focus on uh, measuring things in research about people that have both. Yeah, and that's had that impact of us not really fully understanding as a profession what the presentation of both ADHD and autism looks like together. And, you know, it can be a bit of a tricky one or a bit of a different one. Um, I definitely find just in my clinical practice that uh, someone who is both autistic and ADHD has a very particular presentation, um, whereas someone who is just autistic or just ADHD looks different. And, you know, I think particularly for adults, it can lead, if you have both, it can actually lead to an even further kind of delayed diagnosis or difficulty with mental health professionals identifying what's kind of going on for you because traits of the autism mix with traits of the ADHD and then they can sort of exacerbate some and compensate for others. And it's sort of like this mixed bag of what you've got going on. <laughs> mixed bag of treats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a couple of key things that we look at that can be uh, different for people who have both versus people who've only got one. And one of the main things is the executive functioning profile. So Monique and I have done an episode in the past on executive functioning, uh, but just quickly, executive functioning is basically like our brain's admin team. It lives up in our prefrontal cortex, so the bit of your brain that's just behind your forehead. And our executive functioning is one of the newest evolutionarily uh, parts of our brain. And it's basically responsible for all the tasks involved in maintaining the office that is our brain and our nervous system. So it plays an important role in organizing information that comes in, organizing our thought processes, uh, prioritizing tasks that helps us to organize, plan. Um, it does everything that a good admin team would do for an office. So the executive function profile of individuals who are on the spectrum versus individuals who are ADHDers is quite different or can be quite different. An ADHD executive function profile essentially looks like a disorganized office. Um, rather than having a really well-staffed executive function team, there's like two guys, they're doing their best, but resources were distributed elsewhere in the brain, right? ADHDers usually have um, amazing strengths in other areas, but executive functioning is 
traditionally not one of them. So an ADHD as executive function profile can look like difficulty keeping track of information mentally, um, difficulty regulating attention, so controlling where their attention focus goes, um, and what's called working memory. So difficulty organizing and processing incoming information quickly and efficiently. So that's just kind of a, a bit of a quick and dirty rundown. If you want to understand executive functioning a little bit further, I would suggest checking out our previous episode on executive functioning. But moving on to an autistic individual's executive function profile, people who are just autistic um, tend to only have executive function issues in one particular area. And that domain is called set shifting. So set shifting is essentially our ability to um, mentally toggle our point of focus, our train of thought, our attention rapidly and efficiently between different sets of information. So we could also think about it as mental flexibility, right? It's the difference between a train line and a road. On a road, you can do a U-turn. On a train line, you have to get to the next station before you can change tracks. And the other thing with an autistic executive function profile is they tend to not have any issues with what's called working memory. So they tend to have no trouble kind of keeping track of information in mind, keeping it organized. The functional issue with working memory that a lot of autistic people have, and when I say functional, I mean it doesn't necessarily have a neurological basis for them, but it's an area that they can struggle with in their everyday life. The functional issue usually is driven by the sheer volume or amount of information that autistic individuals have in their mind. And that in part is driven by the sensory sensitivity stuff, you know, the detail focus. So being so aware of everything means that no matter how good you're working memory is, there's a certain point where it becomes overloaded, right? And that's true for everyone. So for people who are both autistic and ADHDers, what tends to happen is a lot of executive functioning overwhelm and anxiety. So the autistic part of the brain is often very aware and alert to all the individual elements involved in something. Um, so they might know all the different sub-elements of a task that they have to do. They're very aware of it, very conscious of it. Um, they might have lots of sensory information that's entering their mind at once. And then the ADHD element has a really hard time actually keeping track of all that information, um, managing all that information, delegating when are we going to do this, when are we going to do that, what's the important bit, what's the not important bit. Um, and what that results in is a lot of anxiety and overwhelm because it feels like oh my God, I know everything that I need to do and I just feel so overwhelmed by it all. I think a great example of a combination brain um, of what you've just talked about, Michelle, is, for example, studying at high school or university. So I like to explain to clients, uh, for example, if they have a, an autistic brain and uh, they have an interest in whatever it is that they're studying, they are going to be able to really plan and schedule and study and have like a, a real routine around studying and do their homework every day and, you know, get those assignments done and kind of have that, I guess, focus. Um, that means that they're not going to procrastinate as much and be able to complete the tasks that they need to get done. However, with an ADHD brain, what may happen is, again, being able to focus on the subjects that you're really interested in, but 
still having a lot of difficulty with planning and keeping track of all the components that need to go into the task, particularly if it's an essay or an assignment and probably starting it the night before. <laughs> and yeah, having a lot of procrastination issues and stress and overwhelm around it. If you have both an autistic and ADHD brain, what can end up happening is you have the best of both worlds, uh, but also the worst of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, with, with study, um, especially if you are doing a subject or doing an assessment of something that you really are interested in or enjoy, you may be able to use the autistic side of your executive functioning and that uh, focus and rigidity and planning and actually implementing things to be able to study and start to get things done and not leave it as much to the last minute. So that's where like the autism can help compensate for the ADHD executive functioning. People may not end up getting diagnosed in high school, but maybe at university when they're juggling multiple stresses, it's then that, you know, the, the autism can't help the, the ADHD uh, compensate. And that's when the overall executive functioning breaks down and people have a lot of difficulty. Yeah, for sure. I think um, people who have both an autistic and ADHD brain, um, exactly as you said, Monique, often if they're really interested in the subject or if they're really motivated to do well, like, you know, being a good student, for instance, is a really big part of someone's identity, right? And that that's how they see themselves in lots of kind of study environments, the anxiety and the stress of not actually getting it done and also that autistic ability to identify all the components and get everything planned can sometimes be enough, even though there's probably an element of you that finds that really hard regardless. Sometimes when people who are both autistic and ADHDers are struggling with that, the downside of that is it can look a little bit like a pinball machine um, with your kind of attention and focus and engagement in things bouncing around between all the different multiple many layered components that your autistic brain can see and having difficulty actually constructing or formulating that pathway you know how do I actually get started what's the second step third step etc another thing I, uh, that's a great example to share is with the special interest component of autism and ADHD because Usually with someone who has, you know, just an autistic brain, they will have a really intense special interest in maybe one or two things. And usually that interest will last a multitude of years, maybe the person's whole lifetime. And a lot of the person's thoughts and, uh, you know, conversations and interactions really revolve around that particular interest. Whereas with someone, again, with just an ADHD brain, they may have multiple interests that they cycle through. So they may have an intense need to find out everything about a particular topic or hobby. That interest may last a few hours to a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then the dopamine's been farmed. There's no more dopamine coming from that. And then it becomes kind of boring yeah, um, and gets dropped. Back to novelty seeking. Back yeah, to the new thing. off to the yeah. next interest. 
So a lot of people who have both autism and ADHD, you'll actually see that mix of both. So yes, they'll have the enduring long-term interests that they may have the same one across their lifetime. And like with the set shifting, they're very focused on that. Um, but they may also have like these mini sub interests that they may cycle through different topics within the main special interest or different unrelated things that come and go. Um, but I think with the just autistic brain, I wonder if part of the uh, intense interest and really organizing a lot of uh, you know time and effort around that interest is part of the set shifting. So, you know, wanting to focus on that one thing and then finding, you know, other things not as interesting to shift your attention to. Yeah, one of my favourite ways to think about an autistic brain um, and an ADHD brain, but the way that it kind of manifests is a little bit different. But it's sort of like the joy is in the journey, not in the destination. And when you're talking about set shifting there, it's kind of like that train, like I'm on the most beautiful scenic journey through this interest, you know, finding out all the most amazing things about it. And sometimes I get to a station and I can pivot a little bit or I can think about it in a different way. But the joy is not about the destination. It's about the journey itself. Yeah. Um, I kind of think of the ADHD brain more like a futuristic flying cars where the joy is still in the journey, but it's a bit more zippy. (laughs) 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 Not diagnostic, by the way. (laughs) I have a scenic train brain. Yeah. yeah. I have a zippy flying car brain. If only. so the other thing that I think can be confusing in terms of the presentation of people who are both autistic and ADHD um, and can kind of muddy the picture a little bit is the social processing component or social functioning. Um, when we kind of unpack the constructs underneath the diagnostic criteria uh, later in our episode today, we'll dive into this in a little bit more depth. But essentially, um, this is kind of based on this old school or our old school understanding of what autism is, um, which is the whole, you know, autistic people are not socially focused. Autistic people don't want to have friends or relationships, etc. which, you know, we know is obviously not true. But even though most uh, mental health professionals are aware that that's not true, the kind of more introverted uh, picture of autism still persists in that when people often think about autism, they still often think about it in the sense of an autistic person is an introverted person. And, you know, for people who just have an autistic brain, um, it actually is, when you look at the big five personality traits, so introversion, extroversion scale being one of them, um, it actually is more likely for autistic people to score higher on the introvert uh, side of things rather than the extrovert side of things. But having said that, there's still absolutely people who are autistic, um, even people who are autistic and not ADHD, who are extroverts. But when we add ADHD into that mix, um, because particularly if we've got a combined type ADHD, which is the more kind of hyperactive impulsive behavior, so the behavioral emotional dysregulation, um, what we often see is this person who is very sort of outward focused um, and doesn't seem on the surface to have any stress or anxiety processing social information because they always just say the thing and do the thing. 
right? So it can kind of make it look like there's no differences with social processing there when really there actually is if you dig a little deeper. I think a great example of someone who is autistic and also an ADHDR uh, would be my husband. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he is on the outside the most extroverted person ever. Um, he is the life of the party. He'll go around and talk to anybody. Uh, and I don't know how he does it. I, I personally, you know, would find that difficult. But no matter what age, what social station, he'll walk right up and introduce himself and find something to talk to or like relate about with that person. Um, And he thrives off being goofy, but then he also is definitely autistic. He's just a really extroverted autistic person that also is an ADHDer that loves stimulation seeking, loves like adrenaline activities, um, loves trying new things. Um, and how the autism sometimes plays out is sometimes he'll kind of say something that, you know, doesn't go down well, but because he's so, I don't know, like charming, I guess, or you can, like so enthusiastic. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that it's very evident that mm-hmm. he has no ill intent. Yes. Right. He's yes, very yes. like he's mm-hmm. a very good natured person. Mm-hmm. Um where if there's a little social faux pas or something mm-hmm. um left a field, <laughs> um, it's it's fine because you know, he's such a gregarious, kind of open, yes. Yes. warm person. Yes. And we've actually gotten a lot more social opportunities, like when we've been traveling or doing things because he's so gregarious and open and people have invited us like back to their homes or out for dinners because of him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good example. And I often find that uh, when parents are coming through to have their children assessed, sometimes if they're, you know, kind of in two minds about what might be going on, one of the things that they often uh, explain or an example of how, oh, well then, you know, but then they do this thing, which is very not autistic, um, is exactly what you were just explaining about Michael, which is, oh, but you know, they're so socially focused. Like they'll go and talk to anyone. We'll be at the park and then I'll look over and they will have joined another family. Um, and it's always quite funny because it's like, well, yeah, like being socially focused doesn't mean that you are not autistic. So, yeah, I think it's a great example of how, you know, getting rid of these kind of old school stereotypes about what uh, an autistic presentation looks like, and particularly for individuals who are also ADHD, who have that more outward facing um, or tend to have that more outward facing kind of gregarious, socially focused, um, impulsive behavior. It can mask a lot of what's actually underlying differences in social processing and the way that communication is used and, you know, et cetera. So the last kind of topic that we're going to chat about today in terms of the overlap is sensory profile and sensory functioning. Um, we know that 
people on the spectrum are tend to be much more sensitive to their environment, the way that that can manifest in the particular sensitivities are different amongst different people. You know, some people might be very noise sensitive, other people might be very tactile sensitive, um, and some people might like a certain sensation in one situation and not in another situation. So the way that these things manifest is uh, different both between people and within people, you know, at different times. But the overarching theme is that people who are autistic have higher sensory sensitivity and they may have lower sensory sensitivity in other areas. Typically the areas where we see lower sensitivity are those introceptive sensory cues. So those internal body-based cues. So things like proprioception, um, vestibular sensation, temperature, um, emotions, what's kind of going on in your body. And, And we've talked a little bit about that in previous episodes. People who are ADHDers tend to, and this is a generalization and the sensory stuff isn't a component of the diagnostic criteria for ADHDers, but they tend to be more stimulation seeking. And this actually really goes back to whether they're more extroverted or introverted. Um, people who are introverted, regardless of whether they're on the spectrum or not, or neurotypical or not, um, have a more sensitive nervous system. And people who are extroverted have a less sensitive nervous system. So they're more seeking by virtue of that to get the same sort of kick. And that's often what we see uh, in ADHDers. So when we've got ADHD and autism, there tends to be a very unusual sensory profile. Something that I think is interesting around the sensory differences between autism and ADHD and, you know, what happens if you have both is uh, for example, a bit of a TikTok trend that I've seen where people will be posting videos um, on ADHD talk, all about ADHD, and they'll actually list a bunch of different sensory sensitivities that they have. And then it's, it's going, oh, well, actually, if you're reporting that many sensory sensitivities, I don't know if that's correlated with ADHD and sort of going, well, if you're reporting that many sensory sensitivities, those actually could be autistic traits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Having a really long, big list of sensory sensitivities, um, things that your nervous system is more sensitive to, feels overstimulated by things, very particular stims that you do, that's an autistic thing, right? ADHDers can have stims as well, but in my experience, I've found that they tend to be more either A, vocal stims, so just making weird noises. <laughs> my house is a perpetual cacophony of random songs that are being made up on the spur of the moment or strange noises. But yeah, I found that the stims for ADHDers tend to be either vocal stims, um, less so body-based stims that we see in autistic individuals. So much less so the kind of flicking, um, rubbing, picking, um, tapping, that type of thing. Um, we can see tapping in ADHD, but again, it's more of a noise-seeking thing. So like drumming on the table or fidgeting, things like that. It's less of a stim in the sense that we think of as an autistic person and more of a um, sensory seeking behavior in that it's either auditory seeking, motor seeking, or stimulation seeking in some way. So I totally agree, Monique. I think 
sometimes people find their path to autism through an ADHD diagnosis. Um, and if there's a whole laundry list of things that you're experiencing that are sensory, it may also be worth exploring the autism question. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've actually, uh, had a few people that I've worked with, um, just like from my anecdotal experience that said that they were diagnosed with ADHD first. When they've started on medication for their ADHD, um, they noticed that more autistic traits came to their awareness, such as more difficulty with reading social cues, um, less extroversion uh, and like stimulation seeking and increased sensory sensitivities. Hello listeners, we have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. So when someone's going through a diagnostic evaluation, it's really important to try and tease apart what is coming from where. So, you know, if we're evaluating someone for autism, we also want to be looking at ADHD, for instance, and vice versa, because as we've just been through, there can be a lot of overlap of traits and they can kind of look different um, if someone is both autistic or ADHD. Also, you know, two people can present with the exact same behavior, but there could be two totally different things driving that behavior or uh, generating that behavior. So a really thorough diagnostic evaluation is actually going into the evaluation, and I'm speaking as the diagnostician now, with zero uh, agenda or zero kind of um hypothesis, I guess. And, and of course, you know, you do have a hypothesis when you start, um, working through a diagnostic process with someone, but it's important to be really open-minded and go into that process thinking it could be anything and really evaluating, um, okay, you say that this X thing is happening or you're having this experience. Let's unpack all the possible reasons that could be driving that experience. So if someone is being evaluated for autism, potentially some of the autistic traits that they're describing could be because of ADHD or something else. And same for someone being evaluated for ADHD could be because of autism or something else. So what Monique and I would really like to do today is unpack some of the key underlying constructs of the diagnostic criteria behind autism and ADHD, just to give people a little bit more information about what actually is autism and ADHD from a diagnostic point of view, and what are the diagnostic criteria actually attempting to capture and measure. So we're going to start with autism. Um, and as we kind of go through these things for both autism and ADHD, of course, these are considered neurodevelopmental, meaning that they've been part of a person, you know, from the time that they were born. For both of these things, all the criteria and constructs we're going to go through for someone to receive a diagnosis, they actually have to be evident in that person from childhood throughout. If someone is just experiencing some of these things at a very defined acute point in their life, then 
it's not likely to be autism or ADHD. Now, of course, there's challenges with that process, particularly if you're coming to be diagnosed as an adult and maybe your parents aren't around anymore. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with your parents. Maybe um, your parents aren't really providing good objective data on what things looked like for you as a kid. Maybe you don't have access to school records or school reports. So I completely understand that it can be really challenging to actually be able to provide that level of evidence. But just from a diagnostic point of view, that's the reason why um, when you're going through an evaluation, you will always be asked to try and provide evidence from your childhood, you know, in, in whatever form that can that takes. And, you know, evidence can just be actually your own very good memory. You know, I've had a lot of people come through that are like, yeah, this was what it was like for me. This is why I did this thing. You know, I had this experience. It's always great if we can have some corroborative information. But as I said, that's not always possible. So with that being said, let's dive in to the autism diagnostic criteria. So the diagnostic criteria for autism is divided into two main sections, criteria A and criteria B. So criteria A is mostly around differences in social communication and social interaction. Criteria B is more focused on repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. So to be considered an autistic person, uh, you actually have to meet all three of the sub points in criteria A. And the reason for that is because the underlying difference or the core underlying difference between an autistic brain and a non-autistic brain is differences in the way that the brain processes social information. So the B criteria with, you know, repetitive or restrictive behaviors or sensory stuff, um, and we'll go through that. They're things that we can see in other people who are not autistic, right? But if someone has these set of social processing differences, that is the core feature of autism. So that's why you actually have to meet all three of the A criteria to be considered autistic. So this is where understanding what the underlying construct that these criteria are measuring is really important because as I'm sure most people are aware, the diagnostic criteria is very deficit-based. It uses those words repetitively, deficits in this, deficits in that. Are you saying that the diagnostic criteria is restricted and repetitive? (laughs) So it meets its own criteria for criteria B of autism? Oh my God. (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) So when I read this criteria, I think about it as a typicality in uh, social communication. So again, typical just meaning common, atypical meaning not common, right? A difference. When we think about differences in social processing and social communication, the three subcategories in the A criteria are differences in social emotional reciprocity. So that's the kind of back and forth in a social interaction. The second one is differences in nonverbal communication. So how someone might use nonverbal communication like eye contact, facial expression, gesture, tone of voice, body language, etc. And then the third one is differences in the way someone has developed, maintained and understands social relationships. So um, how someone might go about making friends, the types of relationships someone might have and their underlying understanding of relationships of, of different forms. 
So circling back to that first point of criteria A, differences in social-emotional reciprocity. So this really gets at the neurotypical way of communicating, which is that the whole purpose of communication, interaction for neurotypical people is relationship building, maintenance of social hierarchy, maintenance of social structure, and maintenance of social status. So that means that when neurotypical people are communicating, it's really important to them that there is a back and forth in the communication. I ask you some questions about you, you ask me some questions about me, and we have what's called a reciprocal social interaction. I might not particularly care about your answers to your question and vice versa, but that doesn't matter to a neurotypical person. What matters is the emotional tone of the interaction. You know, did we both feel like we both participated equally, that we connected, that we formed some sort of social uh, connection, I guess, for want of a better word. For people on the spectrum, though, the quality of an interaction or the purpose of an interaction is really about information sharing right? How can I get across this information? And do I care about the information that you're getting across to me? Yeah, I think for a lot of autistic people, it's it's about information gathering, like little squirrels going in and gathering little pieces of information so you can hoard it and then gloat over <laughs> your giant basket of information. Yeah. And then you give out the pieces of information to your favorite people going like, here's a information nut because I like you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. I have found though that particularly for kids, I think that it's, you know, I really, my way of connecting actually, and you know, you're right. We're we're kind of on the same page with that because it's almost like my way of connecting and forming a connection with you is here's some really cool information that I found, right? Here's all this knowledge that I have. Um, I'm going to tell it to you. Absolutely. Like when I was a kid, I would read books of facts and I would go and share facts with people. So I'd be like, oh, hey, did you guys know that horses are one of the only animals that can't spew up? And that's why they <laughs> I get- didn't know that. Yeah. Well, now you know. <laughs> it's so funny because I think having that understanding of the different purpose of communication is really important for family relationships, interpersonal relationships, because a lot of the friction between an autistic person and a neurotypical person is the kind of miscommunication. And I think once we know how people like to communicate, then it's so much easier to communicate with the people that we care about in a way that works for them. So the next point there is differences in nonverbal communication. This is a really funny one. Um, well, I find it funny because being the being in the profession that I am as someone who works a lot with assessing and diagnosing autism, this is the one that a lot of autistic people think that they uh, mask really well. Um, and Monique and I have a funny story about that. Um, but once you're kind of aware of some of these atypicalities or differences in the way that some people use nonverbal communication, it's actually very, very evident who is using nonverbal communication typically and who is using it atypically. And for neurotypicals, something like 80% of communication is not in the words that are being said, but is in everything around that. And this is why uh, autistic uh, children and teens 
teens often um, can have such a hard time understanding what's implied in what people are saying because, again, they're like, why don't you just say it? Why don't you just use your words to convey that? Whereas neurotypical people are using all of that kind of nonverbal communication to convey meaning. So yeah, a funny little story about that is after I got my official autism diagnosis, I was chatting with Michelle and a friend and I was like, oh, you know, I was really worried they wouldn't pick up on it because I mask so well, you know, being a psychologist and spending 17 years studying, you know, psychology to learn how do neurotypical people act and think. And Michelle was like, oh, you you mask well? Really? (laughs) (laughs) I said it with love. (laughs) The other thing I guess just to say on that is, you know, we're kind of joking around about masking and, you know, how it's often a little bit more obvious than someone might think. But having said that, autistic women we know in particular can be master maskers. Um, And this is why actually the recommendation for assessment is that assessment doesn't take place over one single session. It's really important that you are interacting with someone over multiple sessions and in particular doing something that's quite tiring for them, which luck would have it, is often prolonged social interaction. So, An autism assessment is actually a really good way, particularly over multiple sessions, um, to almost, and it sounds mean, but almost to uh, deplete your masking resources so that at least by the end of the session, even if you are kind of putting up a bit of a front or, you know, subconsciously masking, some of that falls away. And it almost always does. So the last criteria as part of criteria A is differences in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. Um, so this is fairly self-explanatory. Um, I think, you know, the actual letter of the criteria, so the specific wording that the criteria uses is, of course, deficits. Right. And I think, you know, this kind of permeates throughout all the criteria that if we're basing it on that model of a deficit, then it is going to miss a few people because a lot of autistic individuals, again, particularly if you are not necessarily an introverted autistic person, might not have had any difficulty developing, maintaining or understanding relationships, but the way that you went about doing that is probably different to how a neurotypical person uh, went about doing that. So we're looking at things like how did that individual or how do they like to play, right, when we're thinking about childhood? Um, how do they describe or explain relationships? How do they go about making friends? You know, what do they like to connect with, you know, with different uh, individuals? So this is where that kind of changing those words of deficit to difference or atypicality really helps you understand the underlying construct a lot better than just sticking to that deficit label. Yeah, and I think a a good example of having a difference in the way you learn and understand social relationships would be if you are neurotypical, you may just communicate and maintain relationships in a neurotypical manner without necessarily consciously studying or going to a lot of effort to um, learn about those social rules and the implicit meanings behind interactions in social relationships. 
Whereas you, if you are an autistic person, uh, maybe you do understand neurotypical relationships and you do understand how to develop and maintain relationships from a neurotypical lens, but it's through conscious effort and conscious studying uh, through reading books or studying psychology, um, taking courses, like making spreadsheets. <laughs> did this work? No, did that work? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, like the way you've gone about picking up those skills and using those skills is different. Yeah, and I think that's relevant for all three of these criteria A subpoints in that, you know, a lot of people who are on the spectrum might on a surface level interact, uh, have conversation, use nonverbal communication, um, explain or understand relationships in a typical way. But again, the question is, how did you get there and what did it cost you? Did it cost you nothing and you've literally never thought about it? Or is it somewhat of a special interest even for you and you've exerted a lot of energy and effort into unpacking and understanding the intricacies of relationships, communication, etc.? So when we understand how important uh, being able to see these kind of primary differences in social processing um, is in making a diagnosis of autism, we also want to take a look at, you know, if someone is experiencing differences in their social communication, relationships, et cetera, um, is there anything else that could be driving that? Because as we've said, you know, two people can be demonstrating the same behavior for two totally different reasons. Um, and an example that I always like to give is, you know, if I look back on my childhood and my adolescence, um, I, you know, had friends I never really felt like I was super connected to anyone though. Um, I always felt a little bit different from other people, a little bit othered. Uh, but the reason, you know, as do many autistic women and autistic individuals and they describe, you know, always feeling like the odd one out, feeling like the alien, feeling like there was something different about them all the way through. So on the surface, I had that experience as well. But for me, what was driving that was having a bit of a chaotic home environment or chaotic family environment, which meant that I was perpetually in defense mode, right? Monique and I have talked before about polyvagal theory, um, being in a kind of open, receptive, vulnerable state versus being in our fight, flight, or even our freeze state. And that's true for neurotypical people as well. And when I look back onto those years in my life, um, I can see now that I was probably a very difficult person to form a connection with because I was so defensive um, and so protective of myself um, in, in that period of my life. So a behavior that looks the same on the surface, not driven by the same thing. And at a more extreme level, you know, we often see um, differences in the way that people who've had really disorganized or uh, super disruptive or traumatic childhoods, disorganized attachment, um, who have kind of reactive attachment disorder as well, something we haven't talked about on the podcast before. Um, but this is an extreme response to disorganized, disrupted attachment and trauma. Um, we can see those kind of differences in communication and social processing too. But again, what we're wanting to do through the diagnostic process is unpack where is that actually coming from. Similarly, and the last thing there, because uh, this is another common overlap, is introversion. 
right? People who are just very introverted people might not form as many, you know, the quantity um, of relationships that an extroverted person might form, but the quality of that could be different. So the big thing that I find as a clinician trying to unpack all of this um, as something that's a really good differentiator is actually the nonverbal communication element. It's really, really rare for someone who's not autistic to present with an autistic nonverbal communication style. Um, and when you become really familiar with what that looks like in various people, um, it's quite an easy pattern to recognize or pick up. And it's a really good differential for, you know, particularly for uh, quite complex cases where there's so many different things going on um, that can help work out, you know, where are some of these social emotional um, relationship processing differences actually coming from. Well, one thing I would add to that is we do get a lot of questions um, from like professionals and things like that about, you know, how do you tease apart uh, trauma and ADHD and autism? And I think, you know, it's probably going to be too long for us to go into that into detail on on this episode. Um, however, I, I think a good point to make is that you can absolutely have trauma or PTSD and be autistic or have trauma and PTSD and be an adhd and have trauma and PTSD and be an autistic adhd Absolutely. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not like you uh, had an autistic brain so the universe says, oh, great, well, no trauma for you then. <laughs> So our B criteria, uh, this relates to the restricted, repetitive, uh, ritualized kind of behaviors, interests, things like that. This criteria only requires you to have two of a possible four examples of or manifestations, I guess is a better word, um, of this type of element of your neurotype. And this is because it is not uncommon for people who are not on the spectrum to demonstrate a form of some of the things that we're going to go through. So they're less sort of specific to autism, um, but of course having more than one of them is quite consistent with an autistic profile. So uh, these are things like repetitive motor movements, um, such as things like lining up objects, uh, repeating things verbally, such as echolalia um, or phrases of words, tapping, rocking back and forth. Yeah, so basically moving your body in some way in a repetitive way. So um, this is usually a stim of some sort. The other one is the more cognitive, I guess, um, rigidity or insistence on sameness. So this is wanting to do things the same way. So um, wanting to adhere to a routine, having a ritualized pattern of behavior or communication. So, you know, the behavior element of that is things like, you know, wanting to do things in exactly the same way. Um, the communication element of that is having like social scripts that you use in particular situations and needing to use that particular script. That can obviously uh, change in terms of how much you need it to be the same, depending on your stress 
level, but this kind of needing things to be the same way, routines, ritual, etc., um, is that criteria element. Another manifestation of this is, you know, needing to eat the same foods every day, wear the same clothes, do things in the same way, essentially. The next criteria is around uh, highly restricted fixated interests, otherwise known as special interests. And it's interesting because it uses the word abnormal that are abnormal in intensity or focus. So yeah, just really intense interest in either an object or a subject of study. It can be fascination with a celebrity. Um, it can be information gathering in a certain subject uh, that you're really interested in. And then the last one here is differences in sensory processing. So hyper or hypo, so over or under, reactivity to various sensory input. And so that includes things like our uh, external sensory sensations and our internal sensory sensations as well. So when we look at these four sub-criteria of uh, criteria B, remembering that we need at least two to diagnose autism, um, just thinking about what else could be driving some of these things or differentials that we unpack as well. Um, first thing is the repetitive motor movement. So that could be a manifestation of like tick behavior, um, OCD, and we actually unpack repetitive behaviors further in another episode as well. One of the other uh, things that uh, repetitive behaviors could be part of is a side effect from a medication or from a medical condition as well. So the next one, insistence on sameness, routine, ritual, needing things to be the same way. Um, a differential for this is just anxiety. Obviously, when we're teasing apart, you know, is it autism, is it anxiety, uh, as with everything, we're looking at what's the history, uh, what's the intensity of this, how frequently is it happening, across how many contexts is it happening. Um, but it's sort of true for everyone in the sense that the more stressed we get, the more we tend to need to control our environment and we want things to be a certain way because that's a way of a, limiting unpredictability in our environment, which is stressful, um, and B, feeling like we actually have a sense of control over what's happening when it sometimes feels like what's happening to us is completely outside of our control. Um, so that's something else to take a look at as well. The next one there of special interest, as we know, people who are ADHDers also have special interests, and we've also kind of already talked a little bit about how that looks different between an ADHDer versus an autistic person. Um, I guess the differential between an autistic person versus a neurotypical person is that, you know, neurotypical people can, of course, have interest and in things that they're passionate about and interested in. Um, but again, we're looking at What's the intensity and what purpose does it serve? So, you know, if you think about adolescence, most teenagers have some, you know, band that they like or celebrity that they like or show that they like. The difference is a neurotypical person might really enjoy watching that show and might like knowing things about the actors or the band or whatever. Someone who's on the spectrum might have a plastic folder where they have all the song lyrics and carry that around with them every day and then can tell you every single fact about every single band member. Um, so it's that intensity of the interest. And then the other element too there is what purpose does it serve? And I find um, a good way to think about this is 
A, you know, special interests can be soothing and regulating for autistic people. They can also be energizing. And Monique, you know, I feel like uh, you and I doing this podcast has been a really interesting demonstration of that because I love doing the podcast. I love, um, you know, researching episodes, talking about, you know, figuring out what we're going to talk about, etc. But we worked out very early on in season one that when we're recording episodes, um, I lose steam after like maximum two episodes. I'm like, okay, I'm done now. You know, I'm over this. I need to like change focus. I need to think about something else. Whereas for you, and correct me if this is wrong, but for you, it's like, you're raring to go. Like you could like keep doing it for hours. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think too, a good point with the the special interests is how much time is that interest occupying for you in a regular day? Like for me, my interests occupy most spare moments of my time and then my work revolves around my special interests, my friendships, and most of my conversations revolve around it. And when I'm not talking about it or doing it for work, I'm thinking about it or researching it. So I think it's that in the intensity. And then the last one there is the difference in sensory processing. Um, similar to the nonverbal communication stuff, this is one that uh, it's really rare not to see in an autistic person, even though, you know, for the B criteria, you only have to have two. Um, I can't really think of any, just anecdotally, any autistic person that's come through for diagnosis assessment that hasn't had sensory processing differences. Um, so it's a really key aspect or core aspect of the autistic neurotype. When we think about other things that could, um, you know, that, that could cause sensory processing differences, as we've talked about, introversion is a really big one. And I guess the differential there is just a, um, how many sensory processing differences does an individual have? Someone who's not autistic but is introverted um, is likely to have a much more sensitive nervous system, but the different areas across which those sensory processing differences span is going to be smaller, right? There's going to be less. The other thing, uh, and not to open a can of worms here, but the other thing that can be helpful is there's a really great framework or framework that I really like called the highly sensitive person. Um, this is created by um, a, I think she's a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Psychologist, psychologist yeah. Dr. Elaine Aaron. There's a lot of controversy around whether or not this is a quote unquote real thing. As with a lot of things like this, I kind of feel like if it's a helpful framework for you, great. And if it's not, that's fine too. You don't have to pay any attention to it. The highly sensitive person framework is a really a way of understanding and um, articulating, conceptualizing what the nervous system behaviors, emotions, experiences are for someone who is quite sensitive to their internal and external environment. And there's lots of ways that can manifest, but the high sensitivity is a big one. I like it because I think that there are often individuals who present with, for example, a number of the B criteria of autism. So they might have the sensory sensitivity. They might really need things to be the same way, really like ritual, routine, etc. cetera. Um, they may even stim, 
right? And they might have strong interests, but they're not presenting with the A criteria. There's actually no or not enough social processing differences. And I find that the highly sensitive person framework is a really good way of understanding what actually is going on for that person if it's not autism? Because that is a neurodivergence in and of itself, whether it's a neurological neurodivergence or a cultural neurodivergence, right? Different to the cultural expectation. Um, I like it, but, you know, choose your own path. <laughs> yeah, I think for myself, I'm a little bit cautious um, around it, mostly just from the framework of, being wary around people not wanting to actually acknowledge autism that is actually present and minimizing um, the autistic traits that a person would have just because of the social stigma around the label autism and then using the word highly sensitive person instead. Um, so I think that's where some of the controversy can lie. And I think that that can be like a little bit of a downside around not the framework itself, but how it's actually potentially utilized because of the social stigma. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are actually autistic, particularly older people, you know, when there's um, was quite significant stigma around autism, there still is obviously, but becoming less so. Um, yeah, I definitely agree that lots of people who are autistic were labeled or given that kind of highly sensitive person framework as a more palatable way to understand, you know, their neurotype. Um, so I definitely take that. I also think though that whatever works for you as a person and whatever framework or label that feels right for you, um, even if you are kind of actually autistic, if in your mind that highly sensitive person framework makes more sense and clicks more for you, then great. And I also feel, as I said, you know, that it's a way to understand neurodivergent people who aren't autistic because sometimes we get stuck in this mind frame that being autistic or an ADHD are the only possible two ways to be neurodivergent. And that's actually not really true. Um, I really like this idea of kind of expanding beyond that and thinking, you know, how are all these other like different presentations of a brain, the patchwork quilt that makes us up, you know, who we are. Um, I really like things that give us the opportunity to explore that in a more kind of thorough nuanced way. So when we're looking at the underlying constructs behind ADHD, I think it's helpful to break it down into the three subtypes of ADHD. So the inattentive type, the hyperactive impulsive type, and then the combined type of ADHD. So with our inattentive type ADHD, what we're really talking about is cognitive dysregulation. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So we know that ADHD is actually misnamed right? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Having difficulty with attention and having hyperactive behavior are just two possible manifestations of what's actually going on, which is difficulty with executive functioning, which we've already been through. Um, and at a broader level, difficulty with what's called regulation. So regulation is essentially our ability to internally control or manage our internal experiences. And that's an admin job. 
right? That's an executive function job. So with people who have inattentive type ADHD, the uh, management, the internal management or the regulation issues are really around um, cognitive-based stuff, so thought-based stuff. This is things like um, having difficulty controlling where your attention goes, having, um, you know, working memory issues, which looks like, you know, forgetfulness, even though it's not true forgetfulness in the sense of memory. Um, it's kind of, you know, oh, where did I put my keys or um, I'm losing my belongings or, oh my God, I forgot that I agreed to this when, you know, I also agreed to this other thing. So in a sort of colloquial understanding of it, it's kind of that absent-mindedness, right? A little bit disorganized, um, kind of messy thought processes. And that's where all the amazing ideas of ADHD has come from, by the way that tendency to not follow a prescribed structure, to just let their thoughts zip off. So that's one of the greatest strengths, but it leads to that kind of picture of cognitive dysregulation. So often a criticism of ADHD criteria is that it's just kind of this grocery list of random behaviors. But what the criteria is trying to measure for inattentive type is all these different possible manifestations of cognitive dysregulation. And someone who's conducting a really good thorough ADHD diagnostic interview will give you so many options for, you know, how these different things can manifest because what they're trying to unpack is the underlying uh, cognitive dysregulation and different, you know, areas or facets of that. So the hyperactive impulsive type of ADHD, uh, and this on its own is quite rare, um, but this is really that difficulty with behavioral and emotional regulation. People with inattentive type ADHD do also have emotion regulation issues, but their emotions tend to be more internalized less of that uh, explosive externalized emotions. Um, so again, the ADHD criteria for the hyperactive impulsive uh, side of it is really trying to measure how good are you or how much difficulty do you have controlling or inhibiting or regulating your behavior and actions. And this is where that impulsivity side comes from. You know, oh crap, I did the thing, right? Before my brain could put the brakes on that. Then we've got our combined type, which is basically both of those things. And that's the most common type of ADHD. So with ADHD, what else could it be? One of the key things that also impacts our executive function skills is our mental health and our overall level of distress. So when you're trying to tease or pick apart that, you would really be looking at the person's developmental history to see do they have that history from early childhood, like from a toddler onwards of the hyperactivity or impulsivity, like emotional, behavioral regulation stuff going on and the difficulty with regulating thoughts and attention, if it is that neurodevelopmental um, side of things with with actually being ADHD, whereas anxiety and depression, you would be really looking at what were the periods of stress in the person's life or episodes of depression or anxiety. Um, when did the anxiety first start? When did the depression first start um, to look at, okay, was it actually the anxiety or depression or the stressful time that you were going through that was impacting your memory and executive functioning? Yeah, and the reason that mental health stuff uh, has such a big impact on executive functioning um, and regulation overall is because, remember, our executive function skills are the newest evolutionarily, right? They're the kind of nice to have but not essential 
basically. So when our body is experiencing either acute or chronic periods of depression, anxiety, stress, um, the executive function skills are one of the first to go, right? And this is true for everyone to a degree, right? You know, when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, you're much more likely to snap at people. You're more forgetful. Um, you have more difficulty keeping track of multiple things. Um, these things kind of go out the window. So yeah, as Monique said, we're wanting to look at the pattern of these difficulties and what kind of pattern and form do they take over the lifespan. The tricky thing with that is that, of course, you know, it's quite common for people who are ADHDers to experience high levels of anxiety, stress, and depression. So, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg sort of scenario there, but that's where, again, really taking a good developmental clinical history can be really helpful. And really looking into is the anxiety, stress, or depression that the person is experiencing, is it a result of being an ADHDer? Uh, you know, is the anxiety around, you know, failing school or not being able to hand in assignments on time or I haven't started this task that I really need to get done. So the, the other uh, thing that we look at when trying to tease things apart is trauma. So things get a little bit more tricky when somebody has a history of developmental trauma from an early age. So it can be difficult to tease out are the person's executive functioning and emotional regulation, behavioral regulation, impulsivity regulation stuff, are they due to trauma uh, impacting the person's brain from a young age or are they due to neurodevelopmental differences like ADHD? And as we've said before, sometimes it's both. One of the contributing factors to childhood trauma can be parents who are undiagnosed, neurodivergent, and under-resourced, not knowing how their brain works, not having enough support, um, and being in situations where they're constantly required to overfunction. Um, so, you know, all of those things can kind of feed into each other. And then I guess actually, you know, going off that, another really common um, differential uh, for executive function issues is lacking the actual modeling of how to implement executive function skills and strategies, not being taught that or not having that be valued in your childhood. So a lot of things like, you know, emotional literacy, executive functioning to a degree, you know, there's an innate kind of neurological element to that. Um, but these things are also learned skills. So if you were never taught, for instance, how to regulate your emotions. If you were never modeled, how do you actually go about structuring your assignments and not procrastinating? Was education and schooling something that your parents valued? Or was it, eh, we don't really care about that. And why are you studying again? That's stupid. So, or some kind of form of that. So we're looking there too, what has been the environmental impact on some of these behaviors? Um, or is it a more innate thing? I think too, that's where sometimes the intergenerational neurodivergence can come in where if parents don't know those skills because they were never taught those skills because their parents were potentially neurodivergent, then there is that skills deficit that can get passed down generation to generation. Mm-hmm. 
So after having gone through all these kind of diagnostic criteria elements, um, one of the things that I really want to just flag and chat about is this concept of sensitivity and specificity. Now, uh, if you are tuning out right now, I feel you. These are statistics terms and uh, I know that they're not the most interesting thing to hear about or talk about, but you know, I think that it's so important that everyone has a really good understanding about how the mental health care system works and how diagnoses work. So uh, if you can, just bear with me for another five minutes <laughs> while I explain this statistical term. So the concept of sensitivity and specificity are really key in any kind of diagnostic criteria or diagnostic benchmark. So this is the ability to basically make sure that you are identifying as many people as possible who do have the thing and excluding as many people as possible who don't have the thing. So what the diagnostic criteria are trying to do is identify as many people as possible who do have the thing and exclude all the people that they can who don't have the thing. But it's usually a little bit of a balance between the two. The diagnostic criteria for autism is highly specific, meaning it does a really good job at excluding people who are not autistic. The sensitivity, if you are coming at it from an understanding of the underlying constructs, I feel that it's also quite sensitive, but if you're taking the diagnostic criteria for autism at the letter of the law, like the deficits model, then it can be not as sensitive, right? Meaning that it cannot pick up people who are actually on the autism spectrum. Because if you're saying, you know, to be autistic, you have to have deficits in forming relationships. Well, lots of people on the autism spectrum have many, you know, fine relationships. They have no difficulty with that. But if you think about it from the atypicality difference framework, then you can see that. So extending on from this kind of sensitivity specificity framework, it's also important to flag that there are a lot of things that people talk about when they're talking about, you know, the autistic neurotype or the ADHD neurotype that Monique and I talk about as well, that are things that we commonly see in that neurotype but they're not actually part of the diagnostic criteria because they're either A, not sensitive enough, or B, not specific enough. But they're kind of generalizations, they're things that we usually see. A good example of that would be when we were talking before uh, about ADHD and adrenaline seeking and extroversion, seeking stimulation. Um, yeah, a lot of ADHDers love adrenaline seeking activities, but not every ADHD does. Yeah. And to the degree that if we had that in the diagnostic criteria, you know, like something that an ADHD has to have is adrenaline seeking behavior, that wouldn't be very sensitive because that would exclude lots of ADHDers who aren't adrenaline seeking. So we just flag that as something to be mindful of as you kind of navigate um, exploring the neurodivergent world and information about neurodivergence in that, you know, what are traits and features of a neurotype that are not diagnostic but common versus what are the you know essential elements of that neurotype or that construct thanks for listening to this episode of the neurodivergent woman podcast if you have a question or would like to contact us you can do so through our facebook and instagram at the handle the neurodivergent woman podcast 
or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.